I was 47 years old and I had been on fentanyl, a very high dose of fentanyl for four years. Uh, I became ill with Lyme disease, but it was undiagnosed until long after my NDE. The doctors misdiagnosed me with many things, as you can imagine, ankylosing spondylitis, multiple sclerosis, lupus. I mean, they tried everything, considered everything, and had me on many medications that were non-narcotic and opioids, which I refused for eight years, eight to nine years. In the ninth year, the doctor said, we're going to stop looking for the cause of your profound pain and we're just going to give you fentanyl. You have no other options. And so after four years on fentanyl, my brain forgot to tell my lungs to breathe in the middle of the night. And that's what brought on the NDE. I was lying in bed. It was just after midnight, uh, the morning of my 47th birthday, September 4th, 2013. And I, the headboard was against the wall. So much like I'm sitting here against the wall, my head was against the wall, against a headboard. I was lying flat, and I felt someone's hands at my shoulders. And I could feel their fingernails digging into my trapezius muscles. And it felt also as if there was someone at my feet. For a moment, I thought, it might be a snake crawling across my ankles, but I realized it was both forearms of a, of a being. I would like to think it was an angelic being, I can't say, but the forearms were lying across my ankles. I was immediately propelled into a white space. No ceiling, no floor, just a giant white space. And there was a tree, a very large, deciduous tree. It looked very healthy, full of leaves, green leaves. And a man walking toward me that looked very much like Jesus. I thought to myself, well, if Jesus is here, I must be dead. And it makes sense. I was on such high doses of opioids. Of course, I've had an overdose. So I was pretty resigned that here I was standing in front of Jesus. Although I can honestly say I never expected to be standing in front of Jesus. He reached out his hand and he grabbed my hand and said to me, you've suffered enough. Come with me. Your life is over. And I immediately pulled my hand back from his and I thought the most ironic thing that I've ever thought in my entire life. But who will take care of my husband if I leave? By then my husband was caring for me and taking care of the house and working a full-time job. And I was, for all intents and purposes, bedridden. So that was the most ironic thing I could have said. I also had a sense that it was my choice that it was my choice if I stayed in my life or if I went with him. And in the moment that I realized that, I heard a commotion behind me and I turned around and it was the donkeys and horses from a sanctuary where I had volunteered prior to this experience. 
I was previously a horse owner and rescued and rehabbed performance horses and race horses. And when I could no longer care for my own horses and one was adopted out and, and one was placed in a sanctuary, I then volunteered in that sanctuary for over a year grooming donkeys and horses with what little energy I had and I would return home to bed. So it didn't surprise me that the donkeys and horses were there braying and screaming. The horses had reared up on their hind legs, flailing their front hooves in the air, screaming as if to say, don't you remember? And I was back in my body. And for a moment, a vision of the Joan of Arc archetype lingered in the air above me. It was a single picture frame of what seemed to me to be a woman on a horse in medieval times. And she was just staring at me down in the bed. And I didn't realize what that meant at the time, or even to be honest, what that was. I had no context. After the two or three seconds that that archetype lingered in the air, I took the deepest breath you can imagine and I shot straight up, which I hadn't done in years. In order to get out of bed, I would have to roll myself onto the floor and push myself up with my knees and my hands on the bed in order to stand. I shot straight up and I began screaming as they say, at the top of my lungs, I just died, I just died, I just died, over and over and over again, screaming. My lungs were on fire, and my heart ached as if my husband, a 200-pound man or more, was sitting on my chest. It was clear to me that there had been no oxygen in my lungs and my heart had stopped. My lungs were on fire. There is no other way to describe it. And my heart had stopped. And my husband frantically woke up. Oh my gosh, are you okay? What's wrong? And I said, I just died. And my husband, he's on the autism spectrum, what they used to call Asperger's. So he said, well, if you're okay now, can we talk about it in the morning? And I said, sure, honey, because that's the only way to respond to someone that who doesn't have very active mirror neurons. <laughs> and I laid there awake all night waiting for him to wake up and have his coffee so that I could tell him that I didn't want to die, that I wanted to live. And we spoke the next morning, and I, I sat in front of him on the floor with my hands on his knees, and I explained what happened. And I said, this medicine is going to kill me. And I don't want to die. I'm not ready to die. I said, I don't know what it is, but I have something important to do. I have no idea what that might be, but I can't die now. Up until that point, we thought medical doctors knew everything and we hung on their every word.
we believed what they said. We had not heard the term alternative medicine, alternative healing. My husband said that it didn't matter what it took to him, that he wanted me to live as well. And so he gave me quite a wide berth in terms of finances and allowed me to go and seek out alternative care. And like many people who have an NDE, my husband and I both thought I was crazy because I came back with some pretty remarkable gifts. And again, like many people who have had NDEs, I thought I was the only one this must have happened to because I had never heard it before. And again, like many people who've had NDEs, I went on a spiritual quest. And I bought books and I went to Uluru in Australia and I worked with a shaman from Brazil and I sought out Native American and indigenous masters and teachers and shamanic teaching and many different healing modalities. And in the beginning, I just laid on anyone's table that would see me for $500 and I just, heal me, I'm ready to heal, heal me, I don't want to die. And it took a few years for me to learn that true healing comes from within. No one truly has the power to heal you, especially when it comes to trauma and abuse. Over the years, I've done about 14,000 hours of traveling, studying, going to workshops, reading books, watching videos, taking classes, becoming certified. And I've had a lot of interesting experiences with different religions and philosophies and healing modalities. And one of the things I kept coming up against was everybody thought they had the answer, the singular solution. But they also believed everybody else was wrong. And in the beginning, I believed anything anybody said to me because I didn't really have any spiritual discernment. And I realized after a few people who seemed to come highly recommended kept saying the same thing, that even in the spiritual community there was a lot of separation. The unity was missing from community. And I began because I had abilities, but I didn't really know what they meant. I could see chakras, I could see the meridians, I could see the nervous system of the body as a super highway. I could also hear people telepathically, animals telepathically, and I would have visitation from time to time from dead people as well. So I was lucky in that I was able to see energy. And I knew when someone was healing me, if the energy left permanently, or if when I walked out the door, it came back within minutes or hours. And I began to ask myself why that was. And I began to find out about this little thing called self-authority and sovereignty. There's a lot more involved in it. But I think I was very lucky that I was able to see and sense. And I began also to group, and pardon me if this sounds pedestrian, but I grouped my experience in three categories with people. 
One experience would be, well, this healer or this teacher or this mentor or this guru seems very nice and very well read. And they've dedicated a lot of time to learning their craft. And I think they have a really good heart. But I don't think what they're talking about or what they're doing to me is helping me. So it didn't resonate. Second experience I had had would be, well, this person is obviously very articulate, well-read, has dedicated a lot of time to their craft, but I don't think it's coming from a good place. I feel like there's a lot of ego, a lot of competition, and there's a slight possibility that this might not be helping me. It might actually be harming me in some way. And the third experience was, wow, I get you, you get me, this feels right, this information is really resonating with me, this is a tool, a tool that I can use. Thank you for giving me tools, not telling me that I need 10 sessions at $1,000 each and you can't promise anything. There was a pretty phenomenal energetic exchange that goes on in those experiences. It's almost as if I can't tell where you end and I begin. And to be honest, I feel that with you. When I feel that with people, it doesn't mean we're the same. We're, we're at exactly the same place on our journey. It means to me that our heart is in the same place, that we have a similar passion, a similar purpose. And in terms of compassion, we are equal. So that was my experience with healing. I took from each of those experiences and the books I read and the people I met all across the country, and I've met thousands, beautiful, amazing people, I took the common threads of the teachings, the philosophies, my favorite, I think, being Buddhism, the common threads of kindness and compassion and forgiveness. And I employed those together with the tools that I had learned on the way to look deep inside and to, to find those patterns the programs that are running in our subconscious, to clear out the long-term effects of the abuse, both verbal, physical, to be able to understand what the PTSD was. I was a diplomatic protection agent. I carried a gun for a living. There was a lot of stress in my life. I was in a lot of high-risk situations. And the physical strain created a kind of PTSD. And that's how I began to heal. I'm still on a healing journey. We all are. I don't think any of us necessarily will ever be done. But I'm able to fly on a plane. I'm able to drive a car across the country. I take a lot of naps and I take a lot of breaks and I don't stand for very long and I don't walk very far. And physically, I've, I still have a ways to go. But mentally and emotionally, I'm stronger than I could ever imagine being.
the NDE compelled me to heal. Touching Jesus' hand, coming back with that high vibration of Christ energy, being completely incompatible with everything I was, compelled me to fast-track a healing. Over six years, seven days a week, I didn't take a break. I went from seminar to workshop to seven-week class, you know, seven-day class to two-week class, from the cruise ship to the classroom to the downloading the webinar to reading the book. I've done a lot, and I've amassed a tremendous amount of knowledge in these past six years. And for me, what has worked has been forgiveness and love and going inside and taking responsibility for my own healing, my own actions, keeping track of my thoughts. And if there's a thought in there that I don't consciously agree with or particularly like, I track down the source of it. What happened to me in my life that made me think that way? Or might create a thought form that it's not really a thought. It's a thought form. It's an energy pattern that exists that wants to trick me into believing I still think or feel that way. And that's how I work. That's how I've helped myself. And that's how I help people. And that's how I help animals as well.